That's Esther, chapter 9, starting at verse 20. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the poor, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim from the word Pur. Because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who should join them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should not be remembered and observed in every, should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. All right, well, as we get started, I'd actually like each of us to discuss the same kind of discussion question that I got the kids thinking through. What are the, what are the things that you enjoy celebrating? Because that's really what we're going to be learning about from God's Word at this point. Um, non-rhetorical question, 60 seconds, person next to you, in front of you, behind you. Uh, it can be the big things, we've talked about birthdays, we've talked about anniversaries, but actually just, just pause to reflect on what are the kinds of things that we, that we celebrate, that, you know, maybe you, you send your mate a message because your team won the footy, or, or you give someone a call because I just want to let you know, this, is, this has happened, I'm really excited. 60 seconds, person around you somewhere, not terribly threatening, but... Um, As in, the question's not, and hopefully they're not either. 60 seconds. What are the things that you enjoy celebrating? All right, friends, thanks for sharing with each other. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, thank you that in Jesus you give us so much to celebrate. And please, we pray, shape our hearts and our minds to share your passion and your delight. Please grow us in thankfulness and joy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, friends, um, the, the sermon outline on the Sunday Hub for you draws our attention uh, to the great underdog victory that we've read about in the book of Esther. And I think when it comes to celebrating things, there aren't too many things that Aussies enjoy celebrating more than when an underdog comes out on top. I was trying to think of great sporting moments of underdog victories. 
and there aren't too many that come to mind more than Australia's first Winter Olympic gold medal. Um, after all, we're a land of uh, summer sun, not winter freeze, so we really should be considered the underdog any time an Aussie shows up at the Winter Olympics. 2002, Salt Lake City. Can anyone remember who won Australia's first Winter Olympic gold medal? Steve Bradbury, short course speed skater. He won by being the slowest by far enough that when all of the other four guys in front of him fell down, he cruised on through to gold medal glory. Now, as has rightly been pointed out, he did win a lot of races to get to the final, so kudos to him. He's an exceptional athlete. But we love an underdog win, don't we? And in so many ways, the book of Esther, it is kind of, it's a quintessential underdog win. And yet, I think, as we've seen over the last three weeks that we've spent in Esther, there's a lot more than just the underdog coming out on top. We've seen the way this story has been beautifully crafted for us to highlight for us the incredible reversals that have taken place. And actually, what we've just read um, sums that up for us. But it's helpful to understand some of the backstory to what we just read, what Peter read for us from the end of the book of Esther. Because over the last three weeks, we've read about life as one of God's people at the, at the centre of the mighty Persian Empire. If you remember, they are the victims of a genocidal plot of the second most powerful man in the entire empire, Haman the Agagite, who held a deep-seated grudge against the Jews because of their family history. Now, Haman's evil scheme came undone because he didn't realise that Queen Esther is herself a Jew. And so suddenly, um, well, actually, his plot actually became treason and he was executed for it. Esther won great favour with her king and husband, Xerxes. Mordecai, well, he was honoured for his integrity. He was elevated to a position of equal authority to Haman that had, there'd been this incredible reversal as Haman is humbled. Mordecai is honoured, making this Jewish man, who had been under the threat of death, the second most powerful official in all of Persia. But the Jewish people were at that time still at risk Because the king's edict stands and cannot be reversed. Back in chapter 3, King Xerxes had ordered the violent destruction of the Jews in his entire empire to take place in the 12th month of that year. And given the size of the empire, an order like that was effectively an order for the total destruction of the Jewish people. So what does an emperor do when he can't undo his own rules? Well, of course, he makes another law to follow it up, right? And it's a picture of administrative chaos. Like so many points on the way through Esther, I think we're meant to be chuckling at Xerxes in his kind of ego and his incompetence. So, you know, picture in the first month of the year, there are these couriers sent out saying, destroy the Jews. A couple of months later, there's another bunch of couriers sent out saying, now the Jews can take up arms and defend themselves. And all of this is going to happen in the 12th month. There's about nine months of just tension during that time while that fateful day is awaited. But along the way, there's this wonderful little insight into what that was like at that time for the people living in the empire. Because in chapter 8, verse 17, well, in every province and every city to which the second edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating because they knew that they had opportunity for rescue. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. 
You see, you see, in this period, once again, we are reminded that God is at work behind the scenes. Because if we think of the word Jew describing an ethnic people group, well, that sentence doesn't make any sense because people of other nationalities, they can't become ethnically Jews. And yet what we're reminded of here is that this term is not fundamentally about this people's ethnicity, but about their identity as being the people of God's promises. That title Jew, it tied itself back to the land of Judah, which took its name from uh, the tribe of Judah, which took its name from the son of Jacob, Judah. In Esther, the Jews aren't so much an ethnic group, but the people of God who shelter under the promises of God. And in that eight, nine months between the announcement of a battle, between the people of God and their enemies, well, many of their neighbours saw that the safest place to take refuge was with them under the promises of God. And so earlier in chapter 9, just a couple of paragraphs ahead of what we have read this morning, we can read about that fateful day in the 12th month when God's people defended themselves against their enemies' attacks. And it is brutal reading. We're told the body count. Uh, in the capital city of Susa itself, 800 men killed, including the 10 sons of Haman. In the entire province, of the, uh, the, all of the provinces of the empire, 75,000 people killed in one day. And I think we should find this pretty confronting. It's a lot of death. And the story condones it. It, it, it celebrates it. So what do we do with that? I think there's a couple of really helpful details to note. You see, for all of the freedoms that Xerxes gave the Jews through the second edict that he sent out there, uh, he, he gave them the freedom to kill not only the enemies that attacked them, but also their women and their children, and to take the plunder from them. Yet we're told that in their self-defense, the Jews only killed the men who attacked them. In their self-defence, God's people were measured and restrained. And we're repeatedly and specifically, if we read through the story in full, we see, oh gosh, it's, it's eye-catching that it, it's repeated again and again that the Jews did not take any of the plunder. Xerxes had said, take whatever you like. But in their self-defence, they did not pillage and spoil. And I think that's an important detail in the wider context of the Bible too because that decision not to take the plunder reminds us of the context way back in 1 Samuel 15 that we learned about a few weeks ago when King Saul greedily held on to the spoil of battle when he fought Haman's ancestor, King Agag. So this is the backstory. And finally, we need to remember that the Jews only had permission to kill those who attacked them. So as disturbing as those body counts are, as confronting as those numbers are, if nothing else, they simply show us the level of violent opposition to God's people across the empire. And so God's people were told to celebrate, not to glorify war, but to commemorate rescue. This was the great reversal. God's people faced death and destruction. But in his surprising provision, they were delivered. And the plot of their enemies was, was turned back on their own heads. That's a phrase that's used a bunch of times. 
And in a wonderful twist of irony, in a really lovely sort of sense of humour, the festival that they create to mark this, it doesn't even take its name from the Hebrew language. They, they borrow a word from the local language, pur, which means dice. That's why they have to give us the translation of it in the passage. Because Haman, he rolled the dice, he, he rolled the lots to determine the date of this battle when the Jews would be destroyed. But even there, there's actually another beautiful little irony, another little indicator of God's hand at work behind the scenes to care for his people. We've already seen that sometimes these dates, they're so easy to gloss over because they're not in the same calendar that we have. Back in chapter 3, we were told the date that, that Haman rolled the dice to cast that first edict for the destruction of God's people. It was the 13th day of Nisan. Now that doesn't mean much to any of us because we don't have a month called Nisan. But if I mentioned a few other significant dates, you would recognise them immediately. So if I say the 24th of December, you know that's Christmas Eve, right? For most of us, the mention of the 25th of April, we know that's another significant point of commemoration, Anzac Day. Well, for the Jews, the 13th of Nisan rings the bells just as loudly because the 14th of Nisan was the date of the Passover the great day of celebrating God's rescue from slavery in Egypt. What a wonderful reminder of his care that on the very day when their enemy was rolling the dice, taking a chance just to see when am I going to destroy these people, it would come on the eve of the greatest reminder of God's protection and his faithfulness to his people. Because in, when the sovereign hand of the hidden God is at work, there's no such thing as coincidence, is there? And so this is the whole point of the book of Esther. It is written to explain this festival, the festival of Purim, a celebration of rescue and reversal. The book of Esther is all about getting God's people to remember and to celebrate, to celebrate God's great rescue. And as we learned last week, the book of Esther doesn't just teach us about trusting God's promises in some kind of generic way. It is constantly pointing us forward to its fulfilment in the promises of Jesus. You see, Esther points us forward to the great rescue by Jesus on the cross when when he took our place, taking our sin upon himself. And I think the book of Esther reminds us that God's rescue is always worth celebrating. It is the whole reason that the book of Esther has been written for us. So that God's people had yet another festival in the calendar to celebrate God's rescue. Passover in the first month, Purim in the twelfth month. Rescued from slavery to be brought to the promised land. Rescued from death even though they were miles from the promised land. So we've been talking about celebration this morning. I asked the kids, I asked you, what are the things that we enjoy celebrating? This is not a classic kind of pastor's bait and switch. You said something really trivial, now I'm going to beat you up because you should celebrate the real deal of, of Jesus on the cross. I actually think, no, no, no. There are lots of really good reasons to celebrate. And ultimately knowing the biggest reasons to celebrate, I think says that, that Christians should be people of joy, people of joyful celebration, that in all things we look for and we recognise the, the goodness and the generosity of God to us. And so the big take-home point for today is that we should be people who celebrate more, even in the hard times, because we have the greatest reason of all to celebrate.
But it does challenge us to consider what really sets our hearts on fire, doesn't it? What is it that we really rejoice in, really delight in, really want to share with our friends to celebrate? The whole point of the book of Esther was to remind God's people to celebrate his great rescue. At Purim, God's people, they they got together to to recount the story. Uh, Orthodox Jews, even today, will read through the book of Esther, give a dramatic reading of it, and they share the story, honouring the hero of the story, not Mordecai or Esther, but God working behind the scenes, doing the impossible. As we've seen, I think they probably laughed out loud because there's a few points that are just kind of hilarious, as if God would save in that way. So I wonder, how often we, do we do this? Do we actually have in our conversations the, the recounting of the story, the way that God has rescued us? How often do we share our own experience of his rescue, of the simple gift of our salvation? That God would engineer the circumstances of, of your life to do something remarkable, ridiculous even, as if he would save me in this way, that he would, that he would be so at work to bring me under the sound of the gospel and to hear the promises in Jesus. I think with that in mind, I'd love every member here at Trinity Brighton to be able to sum up your own story of God's saving work in your life. Some people call it it a, a testimony, but in light of Esther, we might just talk about it as our story of celebration, celebrating God's rescue. It's kind of like the, the highlight reel of God's rescue in your life. What would it look like to have that kind of on on the tip of your tongue? That in conversation at different points that you'd just be prompted to to reflect in a different way, to share with someone, to celebrate it at a moment that brings it to mind, an anniversary, a birthday, other significant points through the year, that actually it becomes a point of celebration of God's rescue in Jesus. I'd love for that kind of conversation to to shape the way that we talk about our time together here on a Sunday in our growth groups, but even just thinking about the kinds of things that we choose to celebrate in really informal ways with friends. You know, the other thing that I've been pondering in light of this is what we do when we get together on a Sunday because I've been struck to reflect on how this, what we're doing, is kind of our weekly family celebration time, right? What do we do when we sing songs? We're celebrating. We're singing to God in thankfulness to Him, praise and glorify God. Because we've received the Word, through, through that we have the promises, through, through that we know our great Lord Jesus. And when we sing our songs, we're celebrating with each other, we're reminding each other, God is great. Let's pull out a, let's pull out a maraca and, and let's make some noise and, and let's celebrate. God is, God is great. This is our weekly celebration of God's rescue. I have to say, having only had a few months here at Trinity Brighton, I love the way that when we sing, we sing like we mean it. Because we should. I mean, no one, loves the, no one likes the guy that sits there and mumbles their way through happy birthday. Like, come on, get into it. And you do, and it's good, and please continue to do so. Because we've got something so much bigger to sing about than just happy birthday. And when we pray, let's pray in light of that Great celebration. Allow it to be the thing that colours all of our griefs and our joys and the coming together in prayer. Over coffee, let's, let's chat about the things that matter. Let's put it all in the context of the great celebration that we have in Jesus. And so, I think, actually, it's also good to take this opportunity 
uh, to reflect on what we do as we gather in our church community each month when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to do that very shortly. I'm going to invite those that are serving to, to come forward and get ready for that, for that now. And um, uh, Julie and Dave, if you can come up because we're going to sing again shortly. But actually to take the moment and kind of reflect on the, the work of celebration, the, the party, the little, the little point of remembrance that Jesus gave his disciples in the Lord's Supper. Because celebrating God's rescue is right at the core of what we're doing in this. Most often we do this when our children are here because we want to know that this is an all-of-family celebration. Uh, this morning we're doing it this way to reflect on that connection between the celebration of Purim, God's rescue of his people, as it points forward to the cross. That it's on the cross that we've been included in the promises of God. We've talked about what it's like to maintain our identity as the people of God living in kind of the empire of the world. Maintaining our identity as the people of God's promises. And yet God has been so kind to give us this way of recounting his promises, speaking them to each other, kind of getting it deep into us. The Lord's Supper reminds us that the record of our sin, it was, it was nailed to the cross as those nails went through the hands of Jesus. His body was broken so that we might be forgiven. His blood poured out so that we might be cleansed. That on that cross, his victory was won. So this isn't a funeral of a life lost. It's a celebration of a victory won. You know, centuries ago when Latin was the everyday language that people spoke in, some churches um, still use it, but um, back when it was the everyday language, Eucharist was what they called the Lord's Supper because it means Thanksgiving. Because it's, it's a celebration of Thanksgiving. It's a celebration that looks forward as much as it looks back. And when Jesus celebrated the, the last supper with his disciples, he told them that he wouldn't drink wine again until the great heavenly banquet that was to come. And so Christians have seen the Lord's Supper as both a celebration of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, but also looking forward to that day, the massive party to come in heaven. There's no question that it's a time of deep seriousness because grace isn't cheap. It came at the cost of the life of the Son of God. And so for that reason, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we, we remind people, if, if, this is for all Christians, but if, if you're ne- not yet trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, we invite you to allow this to pass you by, to recognise the seriousness of the occasion. But because it's a joyful celebration of God's promises, whatever your church background is, if you trust them, if you trust Him, we're delighted for you to join us in this celebration and true it's not a celebration that comes with party poppers and streamers but it does actually come with really tangible reminders of the thing of of profound joy that we celebrate so i thought it would be good as we as we share in the lord's supper this morning um, to do so with this perspective in mind being people who celebrate god's great rescue you see we tell the story, just as the book of Esther tells the story. As we, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we begin by remembering our desperate state, our situation apart from Christ. So, for example, um, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, this is how the Apostle Paul 
summed it up for us. That as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And so we pray together this prayer of confession because we place ourselves in the story. Will you pray with me now? Merciful God, our maker and our judge, we have sinned against you in thought, word and deed. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbours as ourselves. We repent and are sorry for all our sins. Father, forgive us. Strengthen us to love and obey you in newness of life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Friends, just last week we reflected on the incredible assurance that we have of our forgiveness in Jesus. That when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. We celebrate that it's finished. Christ has won. Our forgiveness is secure in him. And so... In the words of Christians throughout the years, we celebrate that we can come before God without shame, with great joy, laying our hearts bare before him because we have no shame because we know we are forgiven. And so you might like to respond in in the bold font there. As I say, lift up your hearts. Together we say, we lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord. It is right to give him thanks and praise. And so we follow Paul's lead as he wrote to the Corinthians, encouraging them in their celebration. We follow his lead in remembering what Jesus taught us, that I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this uh, in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And as Paul went on, we remember that we celebrate knowing that this isn't the end. We trust in God's faithfulness, in his promises, longing for them to bring them to their final fulfillment. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so for 2,000 years, Christians have prayed together in response to this. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And so we look forward to that ultimate celebration when Jesus does return. When we will respond with the words of praise that John heard in his vision of heaven, with with all of creation gathered around the throne, praising this king, celebrating his victory. Uh, Together, let's say in a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and power and praise. And so friends, when we come to the Lord's Supper, this is what we do. We are celebrating the rescue 
We eat and drink not to get food in our stomachs, but to get God's truth deep into our hearts. And so as the bread and the juice are brought around to us just momentarily, we're going to stand and sing together a great song that recounts this story for us. Together we'll sing the word hallelujah. It's a Hebrew word. It it reminds us that we stand in this tradition of people who have said praise God for his great rescue. So let's stand, hang on to the bread and the juice that we might eat and drink together and sing as we celebrate God's rescue of us.